Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who gather each week to be an inquiry and dialogue on living the spiritual life. We're all on the spiritual path, growing in our understanding of ourselves and others, and moving from being complainers to being empowered to simply being. We know that we can't change the world unless we change ourselves. Welcome to the forum. Welcome to the Spiritual Forum, everyone. So glad you're here. I have such an interesting guest with me today. His name is Claude Anshin Thomas, and he's a Zen Buddhist monk and a combat veteran. Here's a little bit about him. At the age of 17, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and served in the Vietnam War as a helicopter crew chief. Since that time, he's been working to heal the wounds of war, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Ordained in 1994 by Bernie Tetsugin Glassman at the site of the Auschwitz concentration camp, he walked on pilgrimage from Auschwitz to Vietnam, begging for alms along the way in the ancient Buddhist tradition. He has walked several other pilgrimages since then in the United States and Europe. Claude Anshin is the guiding teacher at the Magnolia Zen Teacher in Mary Esther, Florida, and the founder of the Zalfo Foundation, a nonprofit organization that promotes meditation and nonviolence. He's written two books, At Hell's Gate, which is a memoir of his time as a combat soldier in Vietnam and his subsequent very moving healing journey. And his most recent book is Bringing Meditation to Life. And this is a collection of 108 short teachings, which for me is uh, a, a gem you can open up each you can you can open up this book to any page and center your meditation on the words of that page every day. Uh, so that's my introduction. Welcome, Claude. It's so so happy to have you with me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be sharing this time with you. Yes, thank you. We're going to be very organic in this conversation, and I'm just mostly interested in kind of delving into you and your experience of life and the divine and the healing journey you went through. So maybe you can just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and and your journey. Okay, where would you like me to start? <laughs> yeah, because your book, I read your book and, and we can't we don't have time to read the whole thing. But I I, I want to say this. I want to say this, Claude, when I was reading your book, I was so moved by how rawly you shared about your experience in Vietnam. So much so that as I came upon some of these descriptions, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, how how does somebody bear their soul so open and not like want to hide that from everybody? You know, we all have these parts of ourselves that we want to hide because we're ashamed or we feel bad or we wish we didn't do that. And your memoir is full of these, and the, and yet you're so open to sharing those those difficult times that you had in Vietnam. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. What I'll do is, as I go through this conversation, I'm going to inject some of the influences in my life. And some of those influences are tied to the tradition which I'm ordained into, which is a Zen Buddhist tradition. I will not use very fancy words. If I do, I'll explain them. That's great. <laughs> Because what works best for me, is, uh, let's say one of the things that, that gets me um, is when I encounter people who 
talk in a sort of an academic religious language. And what gets me about that is that if you're not educated in that specific way, then you don't have any access to what people are talking about. And the way my life has developed is that, and one of the things that I was infused with and through my experience with Zen practice is that I, I need to take this information that I'm studying and that's being passed on to me through the communities that I'm with and the teachers that I'm studying with is that I need to be able to communicate that in a language that's accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. And so I, I make a great effort to do that. I, I don't sort of hide behind that uh, Buddhist specific terms generally. The first word I will use though is karma. It's it's a word that most people have, have in their lexicon. And they don't actually, they only understand it in a very superficial way. So they under they understand karma as if I do something good to someone, do something good, good will come back to me. If I do something bad, something bad will come back to me. It's it's not incorrect to believe that. It's not incorrect to operate on that assumption, but it's not the complete picture. So my life is formed as a result of the karma I inherited. So in Buddhist practice, we look at two forms of karma, that which we inherit and that which we create. So within me exists my uh, all my fast, past family generations endlessly back through space and time. My parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents on both of those family lineages. So I... I inherit through my parents, not only my physical DNA, but an emotional DNA, a spiritual DNA, um, a psychological DNA. My view of the world is shaped by uh, by my parents and then by the community of, of which where I grow up. So I grew up in Northwest Pennsylvania in a small rural farming community, a town named Waterford. It's just south of Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, and I understand you're in uh, Wisconsin. I'm in Wisconsin, yeah. Yes. So my view of the world was shaped by these two forces. So in Buddhist language, they talk about the, the culture that I grow up in, the society and culture I grew up in is as the collective conscious. So I enlisted in the military when I was still in high school. I was a senior. They delayed it. It was a, they call it a delayed enlistment program. I thought that I was enlisting, but in fact, there was no I to enlist. My my father had been a soldier. My grandfather had been a soldier. My great grandfather had been a soldier. Um, Most of the men in the community where I grew up had served in the second war. And, and, and the literature I read, the films that I watched all glorified um, military service and particularly military service in combat. And attached to that was, if you serve in the military and you serve in combat and you serve honorably, you get awarded, you get some awards and some decorations and you come home and everyone loves you and and you get the jobs are offered to you and everything's just sort of provided for you. And the, the country provides for you out of a debt of gratitude and for your service. And as a um, as part of the contract, that you sign when you enlist. So I, I was imbued with all of that information. So, um, and and in truth, it's at 17, growing up in rural Western Pennsylvania, I didn't have a very big, I didn't see the, I didn't have a very big grasp of the world. 
And mm-hmm. I know he uh, does at 17. <laughs> yeah, my, my world was really pretty small. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel small, but it was small. And so um, I just followed my dad's instructions, go into the military. My father said that if I join the military, and then it will give me certain benefits. It will have me pay for college and that sorts of thing. And college is a good thing for me. My dad was a school teacher. He had a master's degree in biochemistry. And, and uh, I just joined. Mm-hmm. And I, I found, but I found that when I stepped out of the, sort of the cloisteredness of this community where I grew up, and, and into the larger world uh, where I was subjected to people from all from all over the Northeast. And I was really overwhelmed. And now I don't know much about my father's actual service. He never really talked about the truth of it. He told me a lot of stories, but I really don't know what it is that he faced exactly or how he related to that. He died really young too, in 53. Was he um, World War II? Yes, in the Second War, yes. Mm-hmm. And and so, um, but I did see the way he lived his life. My father um, drank alcoholically. He smoked 50 cigarettes, 50 to 60 cigarettes a day. And, um, and he had a horrible diet. The food always tasted good, but it wasn't really good for you. <laughs> I think it's very common. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I remember growing up with bre- and breakfast. One of my favorite breakfasts was on Saturday morning. Um, you have a you fry up a pound of bacon, and then you take a piece of white bread, Wonder Bread. Uh, you cut a hole in the middle of it. You fry that piece of Wonder Bread in that bacon fat, and you crack an egg in the middle of it. Oh, my gosh. And your heart stops. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Right, but that was like that was the diet. That was that, and I mean, really, it, yeah, it, it was. It tasted great, but it's like so not good for you. Um, but this is what I grew up with. I just didn't know any different. Right. And so when I so feeling overwhelmed, I did what my father did. I turned to alcohol, and um, to to sort of anesthetize, uh, and. I didn't understand that that's what I was doing. I only understand that in retrospect. And this is when you came back from the war. Is that correct? No, this is, oh, this is no, before. This, okay. Okay. That's this right. This is before. I, this is like high school. Yeah, this is when I first went into the military. Okay. Okay. Um, because my father drove me to the bus station in Erie, Pennsylvania, dropped me off. Um, no hug, nothing. And got in the car and left. That just made me so sad when I read that. Yes. Um, I, it was just sort of normal. Yeah. For me. yeah. And 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 then I, I I got on the bus, arrived at the bus, arrived at the the bus station in in Buffalo, and somehow found myself to where I was supposed to go. And I was in this big hotel room with a bunch of other men, other young men, and um, I just had no idea what was really going on. I just was sort of overwhelmed, and and I just did what what was modeled for me. I just drank, and. And, and that was the same through my basic training, through my advanced training. And then I was doing specialized training in Europe. And um, I was getting in more and more trouble um, with alcohol. It was causing more and more problems in my life. And my solution was to volunteer to go to Vietnam. Okay. 
So this is what you're calling, this is like the karma, the family karma. Yes. You do what you're conditioned to do. Not, not yes. You're not able to reflect or think or make a new decision for yourself because it doesn't seem like there's another option. That's what you're, you're here to do. You don't know, you don't know. Right, yeah. Yeah, so I was just doing what was modeled for me, what was passed on to me. And, and, uh, and, and so uh, I volunteered to go to Vietnam because I thought, yeah, I go to Vietnam and I'll be a hero and everyone will love me and everything will be taken care of. And and I don't have to, I didn't say this at the time. I, I don't have to feel the way I feel. Mm-hmm. And because I don't know that I had any sort of connection to how I felt. I um, I went to Vietnam unattached. It means I didn't have a unit that I was going to. So I just went over with the plane with the guys. It was actually it was in the beginnings of the escalation of troop escalation in um 1965, 66, 67, the, the number of troops went from like 26 or 30,000 to 500. And I was part of that escalation. And so I went over unattached. I ended up being assigned to a, um, an assault helicopter company. I, I had never seen a helicopter before. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I knew, I knew weapons, but I didn't know anything about helicopters and flying. And, 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 and again, it was just, I will say that the anesthetic for me in Vietnam was not alcohol or other drugs, although I was introduced to other drugs there. The anesthetic for me was combat. It's the, it's the, it's the narcotic of combat, of violence, of war. It's incredibly, violence is incredibly addictive. I've always wondered about that. It, always, it seems like, because we see video games, you know, how kids are really addicted to the violence in video games. And I think one of the things about war, I have not been in war personally, but I've listened to other people's stories. And it seems like one of the addictive qualities is just the, the presence. I mean, there's, you, you, is that right? I mean, you're, you have to be present. You can't like have your mind be wandering around. You're in combat. Is that, is that, there's some truth to that? It, this, this is, yes. It, you have to be, I mean, you have to be intensely present. Yeah. I mean, you just don't have any other choice. Right. Everything is so big and happening so fast. And, and, and that's what military training is about. Yeah. Which is really interesting because military training and Zen training are not all that different um, in, in some respects. And Zen training, however, is my Zen training was, uh, is designed to support me to wake up to that suffering that I carry rather than conditioning me to um, repress it and hide from it. Mm-hmm. I was an incredibly good combat soldier. And what I had to come to terms with, and the things that I witnessed, things that I did, well, personally, the things that I did in war, even today, there are some times today when I just, I really just hate myself. Mm-hmm. And and I'm, I'm glad that I have access to those feelings. I'm glad that I have... Um, I'm glad that I don't run and hide from them because one of the things that I have learned through this process post-war um, is that secrets grow in the dark and they die in the light of exposure. Now, that dying doesn't mean that they go away, that that suffering goes away, but I, but to the process, um, uh, the discipline of Zen practice for me and the elimination of intoxicants from my life, allowing me to really have access to my 
So my brain is not, my thoughts are not clouded or influenced by the substances I'm putting in my body. And uh, my, I have, I put myself in a place where I have more access to, to a full range of feelings. Um, and, and then I have the tools to be able to manage that so to not avoid, not reject how I feel, nor allow how I feel to dictate my actions and, and my view of the world. What you're describing is how, how I felt when I was reading about your experience. I thought, wow, most people would keep this a secret. Yeah, you know, I mean, most people would not be able to tell of these very, very difficult stories and that are probably, you know, lingering the dark recesses of their psyche. And here you are just bringing it to the light. And 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 through reading it all, I, I could see too, this is all of our journeys. I mean, we we all have stuff that we keep secret. And, and that, that stuffing it down, that tamping down ends up being where we act out, where we end up projecting, where we end up being violent, or where we end up being angry. And so what you're describing is that hero's journey to just put the light on the darkness within you. I, I really believe everyone has the capacity to do that if they want. And what motivated me was that I haven't always been a monk. I, I have a son. And what I, what I learned, and I learned this through Zen practice, not exclusively, but I, this really put an emphasis on this. Okay, and this is like this. I mean, my life today, this is like this. Because of, of, because that was like that, my parents' life, my grandparents' mm -hmm. life, and all that I, ex and what, how my experience unfolded because of my unawareness of what I had inherited. Um, as this is, that becomes. So if, if I want my son to have different choices, or if I want him to have a different view of the world, I need to live my life differently. Um, so the other thing that I learned is that as I heal, and, and please, healing is not the absence of suffering. Healing is learning, for me, learning to live in a different, more conscious relationship with that suffering. And so um, to, to, to not hide, because the hiding only keeps me trapped in these repeating cycles. And if I want my life to be different, then I have to do things differently. One of the first edicts that was directed towards me in Zen practice was, we don't care what you believe. We don't care what you think. We don't care what you say. What we care about is what you do. And, mm -hmm. and here's what we would like you to do. And, and it was just, they were just asking me to do, to bring more, to discover what was keeping me from bringing attention into the, into every action that I was involving myself in throughout the course of my life, which is one moment at a time. And the process of, of waking up is at times excruciatingly painful. It's at times very um, disorienting. That's why it's also encouraged not to take that journey by oneself. Only I can do it, but I, I need to have a group, a really stable group of like-minded people close to me that I can talk with, that I can trust. And I also need, um, I need um, an authentic teacher, someone who is rooted in an established tradition and who I can trust with having my best interest at heart. Now, before I entered Zen practice, I had enough life experience that 
that I still, I, I had a pretty decent moral compass uh, once I stopped using drugs, once I stopped getting high. <laughs> I had a pretty good moral compass. And I, and I have a, I had a pretty solid ethical base. So the people that I, I connected with who s- supported me through this, the early stages of this journey, weren't asking me to do anything that was in contradiction or violation of those moral or ethical principles. What they were asking me to do was to slow down, to just sit, invite more silence and space into my life, and then to carry that into everything I do throughout the day. And to understand that spiritual practice and daily life are not two things. Spiritual practice isn't this isn't a, a, the image of a transcendent experience. And my, my life doesn't want to be transcended. My life wants to be lived. And my suffering was preventing me from living that life. And so as I become more conscious of the, the karma which I've inherited and the karma I created out of that, the more opportunities I have to stop doing those things which are not productive. They're not they're not helpful to me and they're not helpful to the society I'm a part of. So if if I were to ask you what is your daily spiritual practice, you would probably say just living. Well actually there are disciplines, there is a structure to it. That it's true, what you just said is true. And the structure is that um, when I get up in the morning, first thing I do before I do anything else, I make my bed. Mm. And then I sit. I and in a, I've been given this posture. The the way I sit is very important to the process. It's, it's like you can't you can't just do whatever you want and call that meditation. I mean you can, but it doesn't make it so. And so it's a, what I've learned is a very disciplined and structured approach. And I I stay with that because I I experience the the consequences of just not arguing, not debating, just sitting. Not not sitting, not to accomplish something, but sitting just to sit and then connect to the breath, breathing in, breathing out, connecting with each breath and, and through that process, discovering what distracts me from staying in contact with the breath. Because if I'm not in contact with my breath, if I'm not in contact with each in-breath and with each out-breath, then I'm, I'm not living I'm not really alive. I'm I'm only I'm 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 going through a life that's dictated for to me by the karma which I have inherited. Mm. And because nothing else exists except this moment. Life is constantly guiding me and directing me. But if if I if I am um, I if I'm living in unawareness, then I don't I I I can't listen. I'm, I'm not going to listen to what life is telling me, what life is passing on to me, what how life is directing me. Now, that doesn't mean that um, I get real clear messages. <laughs> not, none of that. It's just that life becomes less complicated when I attempt, when I stop attempting to get life to conform to my ideas of it. Yeah. So I was just wondering, so do you stay connected with what's going on in the world? You know all the stuff out there. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So you're not you're not you're not advocating. You know, or or your I shouldn't say advocating. Your spiritual practice is not turning off the world out there, the news or anything like that. You're you're aware of of all the stuff that's out there. 
Well, let's put it this way. I don't watch, I have, I don't watch television. Mm-hmm. Don't have it. But I do read, I read papers every day. So every morning, every evening. Um, and I read um, several different news sources, not only from the U.S., but from from um, different, uh, I get some English language news sources out of South America and out of Europe. And I don't restrict myself to a particular, to the kind of news sources that appeal to me. You know, I I, I also read news sources that kind of, I kind of go, oh, oh, I'd rather not read that, you know. I go, no, how can you do that? But it's important for me to not exclude, mm-hmm. uh, um, to not exclude things which I don't necessarily agree with. I, I listen, people talk about what's happening now in the world and how disconcerting it all feels and how it's so chaotic and terrible. And I go, look, I I sort of, well, I, I lived through the early 50s, through the period of McCarthyism. I don't know what the, the world must have felt like during that period. Mm-hmm. This is post the uh, Second War, Korean War. And I lived through the 60s um, where cities were on fire. And students, I, I was at Kent State University when four students were killed on the 4th of May, 1970. Um, this is another, another iteration of... of it's not something sort of new. It it presents us what we're being presented with now are some learning experiences, and and uh, and I I hope my hope is that that more people I, I, my hope is that people will learn from this. And mm-hmm. um, it hasn't it hasn't always it's not always the case that they do, but if they don't, then we then we're going to have to suffer the consequences. Right. That's the karma. Yes. That's <laughs> yeah. right. It's an escape. Right. Right. Now, I don't want to lose um, because we start, I kind of interrupted you and we started with your telling me about your daily spiritual practice and that you wake up, you make your bed, and then you sit and you do the breathing. And then we kind of lost it there. Do you want to go back to that? Well, then, so um, every morning and every evening, first thing I do in the morning after I make my bed is sit. Last thing I do um, before I go to bed, is repeat that process. Okay. Uh, if I'm facilitating, if I'm facilitating a meditation retreat, um, then it's a bit different from that. But just say everyday life. Um, my day starts and ends with that. Um, then I also read. I do. Uh, I after sitting, I commit myself to a period of study. I read some literature, aspects of literature. Um, I connect with people who are. Um, I'd say two or three people who are also um, um, they're also involved in the in a, a process of, of living life differently, which puts us in a position to wake up. Um, and then I, I I take that experience, um, the the established experience that that um, comes through sitting. And carry that into everything that I do throughout the day. So to bring that kind of attention to everything that I do throughout the day. Um, so brushing my teeth becomes also a meditation practice. Um, speaking with you is a meditation practice. Um, uh, doing the laundry is a meditation practice. Walking is a meditation practice. Um, however, 
the foundation of an of a meditation, an active meditation practice is sitting and sitting in a very disciplined way. My day starts and ends like that, and 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 I carry that, I carry that into my day without any expectation of what I get from that. I do it just mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. That's the important part because if I if I'm sitting, if I'm doing, if I'm practicing sitting meditation with an effort to to uh, clear my mind, to stop my thoughts, I'm, I'm not sitting. Because I'm, I have, I'm not experiencing what is actually taking place on the cushion. Because yeah, I'm you're trying preoccupied. To, <laughs> you're I'm, preoccupied. I'm are you achieving your goal? <laughs> yeah, I'm attempting to get that experience to conform yeah. to my ideas of it. It's it's like it's like peace. If I'm if I call myself a peace worker, I might have an idea what peace means, and 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 then I'm attempting to get all of my experiences to conform to my ideas. And and for me, the point of awakening was. Um, to recognize how I was sort of imposing myself on life and attempting to get life to sort of justify my existence or um, to give me some kind of meaning by conforming to my ideas of it, um, which which were just cre- just was creating more suffering in my life. I had I had to be able to go okay. So right now, my relationship with peace is like this. My relationship with the compassion is like this. Um, but that's now. Five minutes, it might be different. Um, and another circumstance, it, peace, these, these, these experiences, peace, compassion, love, um, all of these things are self-informing if I'm willing to let go of my ideas of them. By letting go of them doesn't mean I don't have them. But it means that I, I I don't cling to them as absolute facts, but but that rooted in this discipline practice, I'm able to look at these ideas that I have from different angles of perception, and I'm I'm so so thankful for that today. I, you know, I what I witnessed, what I participated in in war, um haunts me. Um, but I know today that I'm not a good or a bad person because of what I've done. I am, however, responsible. And so to that end, how do I live my life? Because I can't change it. I can't change one thing about what happened in the past. I can't. Right. No one can change the past. Yeah. No, what I can do is, is live with that differently today. In order to live with it differently, I have to be available to how I was affected to what I did and how that impacted me and how that impact and shows itself in my daily life today. You know, yeah, car pulls up behind me and, and I'm not moving quite as fast as it like, and it blows its horn. And, and so rather than put the, put my car in park and get out of the car and scream and yell and punch and break and do all of the kind of things that sometimes my mind wants me to do. I don't have to do that today. Uh, and, and, and that's a way for, uh, see, karma is not the same as fatalism. I'm not trapped in this karma. I, karma can be changed. And by changing it, it's not that I necessarily do some things differently. Well, but yeah, I do things differently. I stopped doing what I was doing in the past. And that means already something else is happening. Something is changing. 
Yeah, I know you you talk about in your book the the process of the guy behind you honking or whatever that you talk about how your mind goes through what you could do, you know, the the whole and, and I love this. So you describe, you know, my mind goes through, I could get out of the car and I could go and, you know, yell at that person or do whatever I want. So it's like you're able to really identify this is something that within me, there's a part of me that has this idea of doing this. And then you're you're able to choose and go, that is not what I'm going to do, that I'm I'm going to do something else. And you talk about the person behind you honking or others like that being your teachers. Yes, absolutely. They're giving me an opportunity to look at how I've been conditioned to respond to certain stimuli or experiences in my life. A precise example. So then I, I'm, I, I've taken vows of mendicancy. That's a term that's not so familiar in the U.S. In Europe, there are people who are more familiar with it because there's a there's a more stronger connection to monastic traditions. They're Christian monastic traditions, but so they're just more familiar. Um, mendicancy means I have a, a simply I have a vow of poverty. It means I'm not allowed to own anything. I'm not allowed to work in a gainful way. I don't have health insurance. I don't have all of the social trappings that um, I'm conditioned to feel. I'm conditioned to believe I have to have to be safe. So I, I live from the support of a larger community. For example, the books. Um, I'm, I'm a blue collar monk. I'm not into building market share. I'm not into building big, big meditation centers. I'm not into drawing in a lot of people. And the proceeds from the, the books um, go directly to the foundation, which supports the work that the foundation does, the Zalto Foundation. You mentioned that earlier. Um, but so the the, the um, center is located in a in a neighborhood in the community where where I'm staying when I'm not traveling. So the last two years I haven't traveled much. COVID. Um, before COVID, I was traveling 260 days a year. Um, so there's there's one there's a, an empty house next to the house where um, I'm I'm staying where this foundation provides me to stay. The person who owns the house doesn't actually live in it. Um, they they live in a, another community, maybe fifty miles away, and they were they would rarely ever come. So the place looked really abandoned. So I thought, well, what I did is I trimmed the hedges and I cut the grass because the grass hadn't been cut in like a month and a half, two months. So I trim the hedges and cut the grass. And the person who owns the house, um, a couple of days after I did that, I came to the house. And then they came and knocked on, uh, rang the doorbell. I answered the door. And they said to me, um, oh, someone has done something to my house. Do you know anything about that? And I said, well, yes. And that was me. I said, I, I trimmed the hedges and cut the grass. And they looked at me and they said, don't ever set foot on my property again. They called the police. And I got um, I got tagged with a no trespass warning. Oh wow! Now out of that, so my reaction to that, first I, I took some steps to find out. I had the property lines surveyed. I have to go through a process with these things. I had the property lines surveyed, and I discovered that the fence between there's a small fence between the two properties at one section, and it's a foot 
onto the property that this house sits on. And when I announced that, and the person who has the house now got very angry and directed that towards me. So I, I talked to, a, uh, I talked to a, um, a real estate attorney, it was someone who was knowledgeable about these things and, and asked what my options were. And he said, he explained what my options were and said that generally it was, would cost a fair amount of money to go forward with, with any, kind of, any, any kind of official action. He said, the attorney said, one of the things you could do is that um, you could just hook your truck up to the fence and just tear the fence down and then rebuild it in its proper place. And he said, before you do that, though, um, let me know and I'll contact the sheriff's department because I know the attorney who represents them so they know what's happening. So I had all kinds of thoughts and all the thoughts, that, the feelings that I had were just, they were big. I felt so, I felt violated. I felt not mm-hmm. disrespected. I felt, uh, I just had all kinds of wild feelings and and those feelings generated a certain series of thoughts and 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 none of them were, all of them pretty violent. <laughs> so, so just going through a process to see what my options were. And, and this is for me what meditation is like. I'm, I'm looking at the situation from different angles of perception. And, and in the end, I, I opted, I said, I opted just to say, I'm, I'm really glad that I'm not in that owner's skin. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. They can't appreciate, they, they, they can't appreciate um, a simple act of kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they had the idea that they didn't want anyone laying claim and they felt that that was somehow laying claim to something that wasn't, wasn't mine. It was theirs. And it was, it didn't have anything to do with that, mm-hmm. but I just glad that I'm not in their skin. So that so is how the process of meditation works for me. Meditation in daily life works for me. And, and, and when I, when the person, but now what happened as a result of my not doing anything, but going through this process and not escalating it is the person comes more routinely, um, takes more care of their property. So it doesn't look abandoned. And I just go, Oh, that's a good thing. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm not in their skin, and I'm glad that they're, they're, they've now also taken some steps to be more responsible about the place because an abandoned property in the neighborhood invites doesn't invite good energy. So that's an example for all of us as to when we encounter these conflicts with our fellow beings on this planet, how to how to walk through it as a meditation how to not escalate it, but be very present and observe your reactions. But what I really took from this is how you are very aware of your feelings. I think a lot of people are not aware of their feelings. They're aware of their thoughts, they're aware of their reactions, but I'm in, I'm in conversations with people a lot when I'm you know doing prayer work with people or whatever, and I ask them what they feel, and they come back with, well, I think he should, <laughs> I think they are, you know, it's like, no, well, how do you feel? But you seem like, you're, at least at this point in your life, you're very present to your feelings. Let's say I, I want to be very present to them. I really do. Because I understand that, I understand the dynamic that um, experience 
um, that, that I respond to experiences in my environment. And the, ex the response that I have is, uh, it's not, it's an interconnected response. So I will have a, a visceral response, which is feelings. That, that visceral response will give birth to thoughts. Mm -hmm. So I have all sorts of ideas um, of, of what I'm supposed to do. My feelings are dictating the ideas of what I'm supposed to do. So feelings give birth to thoughts. Thoughts and feelings, when they merge, give birth to projections, which is what I need to do. And of course, I don't need to be held hostage by my thoughts or my feelings. I have been able to become the observer. That doesn't mean it works all the time for me. I mean, sometimes I get caught in doing things I don't like to do. Right, we're I all go, in oh, process. No. <laughs> oh no, I did it again. We're and all in process, yeah. Um, there are a couple of things that I'd want to talk about. Um, one one is, is war. Uh, one of the things that I really learned from you, which is actually pretty obvious, I guess, but I don't think most of us think about this, that... We are all players in war, you know, that all of us have a responsibility in war. It's not just the soldiers, it's not just the generals, it's not just the government, but that we all play a part in this and that we all have, um, you wrote something like, we all possess the seeds of violence, the seeds of war, and um, that non-veterans are also responsible. And can you talk about a little bit about that? Because I think that's something that we could all really benefit from. What I'll do is I'll use alcohol as an example. If people want to study with me, I talk about how intoxicants get in the way of really um, awakening to the truth that, that life is communicating to us all the time. And that if we want to really wake up, that we need to stop taking intoxicants, the obvious ones first. Stop drinking alcohol, stop smoking cigarettes, Start there and then then see what grows, up, what is added to that list. And people will say, and I'll ask the question, say, all right, how many people in this group drink alcohol? And probably 80% of any group will raise their hand. And uh, I will say that it's important to understand that one of the other reasons that I invite people to stop drinking alcohol is that, say, if I buy a bottle of alcohol, whatever it might be, then I, I'm supporting the industry that produces it. And that then leads to my responsibility for every person who's ever killed or maimed or in an alcohol-related accident, for every child that's abused by an alcoholic parent, for every wife that's abused by, uh, uh, by an alcoholic uh, spouse, for every man who's abused by an alcoholic spouse, I'm responsible for that. And I need to be willing, I can't just dismiss it because intellectually, I mean, I can intellectually, oh, yeah, that's just, that's, that's way too, people will say that's too much, man. It's like, not true. It's not really true. It's one glass of wine, man. It doesn't mean it, but we have to be, I had to be willing to say, to see that interconnected reality, which I'm part of and understand that my actions are not isolated. They have an interconnected impact throughout the world. Another example, people will come up to me routinely when they discover that, I'm a, um, that I've served in the military and they'll say, thank you for your service. And I, I tell you, it's like, for me, it's like 
fingernails on a chalkboard. Mm. And I, I used to sort of ignore it in the past. I mean, really, it, the feelings that would rise up in me is that, like I would want to really just, I would want to educate them. I want to say, hey, look, you know what you're thanking me for, right? You're thanking me for uh, burning down villages. You're thanking me for killing everything in sight. You're thanking me for kicking in doors. You're thanking me for, you're thanking me for all of that. Like, is, that's not really something to be thanked for. And so I would want to, I would want to lay that out on people. What I've done is I, I, I understand that yet they don't understand. And, and it's not really possible. I've done that a couple of times and I can see how people just recoil from that. They, they can't hear it. They don't want to hear it. It's like they, you don't want to hear the bad part over there. You just want to hear the valor part or whatever, the idea of it. Yes. It, it, the Greeks use a word. Themis, it's the it's the it's the veil of reality we create around ourselves to, to to keep ourselves safe. So when and when they say thank you for this service, they have all sorts of ideas about what that means, and and what war is all about. They they have all these ideas, but they don't really want to know the truth of it. Mm-hmm. So the moment someone speaks the truth of it and penetrates that veil of Themis, um, they 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 can't. They just shut down. People just shut down. For the most part, they shut down or they get aggressive um, because then their whole worldview is somehow threatened. Or, um, and, and, and so I've t- if somebody wants to have a conversation about that, I'm well willing to have it. Um, I don't impose myself on people today when they say that. I just go, just go you're welcome. Mm-hmm. But it's true. Um, we all have a part. In in the in the propagation of of a war culture, um, and and my hope is that people will 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 wake up to that. That being said, I mean I support a number of people who are in the military, um, and and people say, well, why do you do that? And I say because um, they need to they need to know that at a certain point their service will end. And when they move out of the service, I mean, their world in the military is really big. Once they step out of that bubble, they'll find out that their world is not so, that the world is much bigger than that. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, what's my purpose? What's my mission? What do I do now? And so they um, they have someone to turn to who is I got a map. You know, I I can handle the map and say, here's the map. You get yeah. you, you have to drive the route, but here's the map. This is a map of healing. It's a map of healing and transformation. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. a process. It's it's the tools of an active meditation practice, which are listed in that book at Hell's Gate. Yeah. Yeah. So we're all we're all a part of the war culture. We inherited it. <laughs> you know, it's not like we all came in as babies and said, Hey, I got an idea. Let's create a war culture. You know, we come in fairly innocent and but we inherit, we inherit so much. I when you talk about nobody wants to hear about what really happens in war, most of my listeners know that I'm I'm vegan and I'm an animal advocate and and uh, no nobody wants to hear about what's going on in the slaughterhouse. Nobody wants to hear about you know the factory farming. They don't want to hear that. They just want to see the meals on the plate. So there's something about us, and I think it's a shadow work. It's our ability to really integrate 
who who we all are, the violent aspects of ourselves that we all buy into. I think that's really interesting how thank you for your service lands on you. <laughs> because I could also hear, if it were I, I, I could also think, well, I, you know, like, am I, oh, I don't know, is there some idea that you think I'm serving you? I don't know if that's a, another part that comes up, but it's, um, it's something we all have to come to grips with, that we're all, we're all part of this war paradigm. We have to be willing, to be willing to come to grips with it. Well, actually, I think it starts, we have to be willing to be willing to come to grips with it. <laughs> we're willing to be willing to be willing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, really, it, 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 yeah. It, starts, it starts in these sort of subtle ways. Um, it, 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 and some of the, I've often said uh, publicly that some of the most insidious forms of violence that are perpetrated in, in societies and cultures are, are um, by people in the name, people who are acting in the name of good. Yes, yes. They're imposing, because they're, they're attempting to get the world to conform to their ideas of good, which just create more suffering. I'm not a proselytizer. That's the other thing that drew me to Zen practice. I don't have to convert. I don't have to proselytize. There's no conversion. It, it's just, they, they just ask me, they just do these things and then see what shows up. Yeah, and you're, you originally turned to the Zen practice through your experience at Thich Nhat Hanh. Is that correct? That was your first experience? Uh, through a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. I, I, oh, often, okay. I often don't like to refer to the people I've contacted with by name. Okay. Because I want, my practice needs to stand on its own. Sure. And I, I don't like to, I don't want to, I see too much of that happening in the world today where people are building themselves off of somebody else's work. Right, right. And so, um, yes, I had a, an encounter with a, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk who helped me to find my voice. Yeah, and I, I look at this as, you know, like in the hero's journey, these are the teachers that show up, the teachers that show up to to lead you and to guide you more than this is somebody who's, whose shoulders I stand on. Well, the person who, who called the police on me, that person is a very powerful teacher for me. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that the the when we have that friction, you've mentioned that in your book a few times. This is my teacher and my teacher shows me my projections and shows me where I I am um, leads me back to peace. I do want to talk about peace. Again, I'm going to talk about peace and healing because <laughs> um you say healing this is a quote from your book. Our culture operates with the idea that healing means the absence of pain. But I've come to understand that healing doesn't mean that our pain and suffering go away. Healing is learning to live in a different relationship with our pain and suffering so it does not control us. I think that is so important because I think people think that I will be healed when I do not feel pain any longer. And that is not true. It's no, it's not true. Um, um... It's one of the things that's unsettling for me about the society and culture. Well, not just here, but because I experience society and cultures all over the world. It's interesting. As, as a mendicant monk committed to vows of poverty, I travel all over the world. People go, well, how do you do that? And I go, well, if a person or a group wants me to come and do something, my vow is to accept that invitation. However, what I do is if it, if it involves travel, especially overseas travel, what I make an effort to do is, a step, is um, establish several venues in that area 
so that the cost of travel is shared and I travel as inexpensively as possible. Healing is not the absence of suffering. It's learning to live in a, in a more conscious and different relationship with that suffering. People are conditioned to not want to feel anything uncomfortable or the, what they call right. uncomfortable. That's for sure. They just yeah. want ease, ease and comfort. That's all they want, ease and comfort. Anything that threatens ease and comfort, they don't want to do, deal with it. And so there's all kinds of ways to do all kinds of tricks to not feel. There's all sorts of distractions to not feel. And all of those distractions are intoxicants. And so I start with the obvious ones. And then people who want to practice with me, who, who really are willing to do this work, um, we start with the obvious ones and then they get to see what's showing up next <laughs> because it's, it's a constant process. It's not, it's not a one and done thing. I refer to it as, as polishing the stone. Um, we just keep polishing that stone. I have to, but I have to want, I have to want to wake up. I have to really want things to be different. And I tell you, I, I, I really, I so wanted things to be different. I so wanted my life to be different. And my dad died at 53. My, my mother lived there. Ah, my, I feel so, my, my mother's, the life that my mother lived um, is sad for me. Um, I'm a trailer park kid, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't say that to disparage people who live in trailer parks. The kind of culture that I grew up in was a lower middle class, lower working class kind of culture. It just has this sort of cycle of suffering that just keeps repeating itself and repeating itself. And I have a chance to break that cycle. That was what was empowering to me about Zen practice. I can break. As I heal, I heal for all those past generations. As I heal, I heal for all veterans. If I want war to end, I need to wake up to the roots of war in me. And I need to stop perpetuating the kinds of wars that I would perpetuate through my um, compulsive or uh, my compulsive reactions to avoid suffering. So our aversion to suffering is fuels the war within us it, it fuels it it fuels it or it is it it is it yeah our ver okay our, our our version to suffering is the war inside us yeah yeah and that's and that's oh that's so interesting it's it is so interesting and it's it's that it's that turning turning into that those darkest places where all the potential for transformation transmutation is and it's just so scary and that's what i just love about your memoir because it's such a raw and profound journey through your heart, your experience that is so unusual because people are, uh, it's just so hard to share all of those dark places. I just think people are just walking around. We're all walking around. I, I'm walking around hiding some. It's, it's like the it's like the little boy with the dike and trying to put fingers where the where the floods come. You can't do it. You know, you can't, at some point you can't do it. You've got to face it all, and that's really what our journey is. When you talk about awakening, what do you what do you feel like you're awakening from? The conditioning? No, not awakening from, but awakening to. Awakening to. Okay, so you're awakening to the karma which I have inherited. That's. That's all that suffering from past okay. generations, like how society and culture, how I'm conditioned to view the world. Okay. You know? Like, okay. like I'm not of any value unless 
I'm, I'm married with two kids. I, I have a, I have a job where I make X amount of money. I work until this point, then I retire. And my retirement, I do this. Yeah. You know, and my kids, my my kids are uh, need to go. My kids need to do this, this, and this, and they need to accomplish this. And it's all that's that whole story that I'm yeah. conditioned to. Awakening to the structures that we are, we were born into these structures. And we have a choice to not be in them, but there it's so easy for us to slide into, like you say, the the certain education and how, what life is supposed to look like. and and um, we have so much choice, but it doesn't look like it. So that's I love that. So we're awakening to. We're awakening to it's almost like we're awakening to the matrix that we're in. Yes. That's a yeah. good analogy. Yeah. I love I love I love the Matrix. Matrix is a great film. Isn't it a it's, great? It, yeah. And 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 what I do is that, that sort of the violence is depicted in the Matrix. The the, the external violence is project is sort of what I have to confront within me. It's it's the process of confronting, it's a process of waking up and seeing saying like I, I I'm not actually living life. I'm I'm only going through motions to fulfill some idea of what I'm supposed to do. And, and this is like, there's no, what's the point in that? After war, none of that stuff made any sense to me. I had I struggled for a long time because existence itself didn't make any sense to me. 22 a day, 22 a day of us kill ourselves. Uh-huh. People not able to navigate the um, navigate that sort of space they find themselves in post combat or post military service. It's like all of a sudden life uh, life life just, just, just somehow doesn't make any sense. Well, your journey is so fascinating, and I think it's a huge gift to all of us. I am interested in what what was your motivation for your the book that you've just published, bringing meditation to life. Is that something that was just kind of on your mind, and you just kind of wanted to get it on in print, or was there something that uh, what 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 was your purpose in in this book? Well, actually, the motivation wasn't mine. Um, the board of directors of the Zalto Foundation, one of the one of the the person who serves on one of the people who serve on the board. Who also is a, a, a was was the editor of the first book, and it was their inspiration. They said, "I would like to see this kind of book." Okay. So I said, "Well, okay." I mean, I wanted something different, and they said, "Well, let's, let's do this." I said, "Well, okay," and and so they we um, sent out an email to the people who have studied with me or were part of the Zalto Foundation or close, and. And they asked in the in the email was requested, are there any specific quotes or things that that I've said or or written to them that were very meaningful to them? And and if so, send them in. And so this is just a this is a compilation. Compilation, yeah. This is things that I've said in public talks or things that I've said to somebody in an, in an individual meeting or some response I've written in an email. So it grew out of that. It grew out of the inspiration of um, a board member who was also the editor of the first book. Okay. I just want the people who are listening now to 
to get a sense of what this book is because it's what, what I love about it is I, I just I think most of us don't have time to sit down and, and read books a lot. And I think part of that's a social media world. But I just want to read a couple titles. So, so if I just open it up, like there'll be the, the Four Essentials of Zen, Working Meditation, Eating Meditation, Discipline, True Bowing. I look forward to reading that. Facing Our Feelings, Facing Uncertainty, Coming Back to the Breath. You can do this. So here, are just a, those are just a few of just if I open up the book that there's some wonderful wise words that I think could be like the center of one's day if they wanted to take this on. Just open up the book and read that little um, words of wisdom and 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 live in that space. Yes, and there's no intention with the, with the book. I just invite. I, I haven't had any. I've had nothing but. I haven't even had ambivalent feedback about this book, which is pretty interesting to me. Yeah, People, by and large, speak quite positively. Their reactions are quite positive to what's revealed in, in, in the course of their going through this book. Well, that's great. I, um, I want to let you have any last words if you have something that you want to share that I didn't cover. I actually think we've done a pretty thorough job. I, um, will you mention the Foundation's website or where people can get the book? Yeah, so let's talk about that. I will put it on the the web page for this podcast, but not everybody goes there. So if you want to 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 make a few statements here, so people who are listening get it. the The first book that we've been talking about is that the title is "At Hell's Gate: A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace," and it's published by Shambhala Publications. The second book which we've been just talking about, is Bringing Meditation to Life, 108 Teachings on the Path of Zen Practice. It's uh, published by Oakwood Publishing. The books are available in a wide variety of places. I, I'm not going to bother with talking about them all. However, the one place where this inf- all this information is available, and if people are interested to know more about uh, the Zalto Foundation, that's Z-A-L-T-H-O, it has a, a web presence, Zalto.org, O-R-G. And they also have a social media presence, um, a Facebook presence, and they have an Instagram presence. So if people are on, uh, a lot of people, uh, me excluded, have an active um, presence on social media. So the Zalto Foundation is available to them. If you want to know more information or if you're interested in these books, you go to those, to any of those sites. And they will direct you to where you can and get your hands on these books. The profits, the proceeds don't come to me. They go to the foundation to support the work that the foundation does. If you're interested to know what work the foundation does, please visit the website. That's wonderful. Uh, Claude, it was really a pleasure meeting you and, and speaking with you today. I really appreciate, as I mentioned in the beginning, just the generous sharing of yourself and your books and also here with us today. It's very inspiring to see a person go through the healing journey that you've been with starting with starting with your your life in the trailer park as you mentioned but the the experience in Vietnam and to know that you've gone through this healing I think it's inspiring for all of us who also are on healing journeys or or are being called to be on a spiritual healing journey and being called to awaken 
to the matrix that we're in <laughs> that we talked about. So uh, thank you so much for joining, joining me today. And I now close the spiritual forum. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about us, check out thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. We're a nonprofit corporation and depend solely on donations from people like you. If you find that you're benefiting from your listening, we encourage you to donate on our website, thespiritualforum.org. Our music is by Matt Nelson. Sound engineering is by Mark Jaschelski.